what a tremendous gift uh, of songwriting that God has given, and yet uh, I don't want to diminish in any way the amount of hard work, discipline, and skill that goes into that. I also don't want to, well, I don't know, I'm probably not supposed to say this, but uh, this was the first, this morning was the first time this band has played that song together, so I'm, I'm just amazed, because <laughs> I don't have those skills, but... All right. Today uh, we begin our Advent season, and uh, as we as we contemplate what that means, uh, as Shelley mentioned, there is a devotional booklet that we've put together. Uh, I strongly encourage you to uh, to pick one of those up, or to uh, follow the Facebook page and, and watch those. Will be posted daily. Uh, the first one was posted today, and they will run all the way through Christmas. Uh, and they center on the same theme. So as we go through that Advent devotional booklet, what they will be doing is developing the, the thoughts that we're going to be talking about on Sunday. So the sermon uh, on Sunday kicks off that week, and these devotions written by your brothers and sisters here in the congregation um, will help kind of put flesh on that as we contemplate those things together. And uh, so I strongly encourage you to follow along with that. I think it will bless you greatly. I know it has me over the years. Now, whether or not we actively practice it, we all know that uh, Christmas is intended to celebrate Christ. And in our modern understanding, the birthday of Jesus. That's not necessarily how uh, Christmas started, but uh, in any case... We see Christmas uh, as celebrating the birth of Christ. Advent, however, is celebrated during the four weeks leading up to Christmas. And it focuses specifically on, on the concept of the coming, the actual coming of Christ. Not necessarily the nativity, that, that birth day, birth night, uh, you know, the little nativity scene crash that you have in your home. That's not so much the focus, but the fact that God put on flesh. To dwell among us, to come and, and walk in our shoes and to die in our place. This is the focus of Advent. It focuses on the actual coming of Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed one. Our hope is that this season's Advent devotional and this sermon series will help each one of us consider more deeply what it means that Jesus is the Christ and that he actually came. In other words, for us to wrestle with that question that Stacy just sang about, what child is this? And that's our, that's our theme, understanding the Christ who came. Today we'll be considering that the coming of Christ was God's perfect plan from the beginning, foretold since the garden. And while the promise of his coming is ancient, the Christ who came is eternal. Now, we are kind of walking through the story of uh, the coming of Christ and the nativity, uh, so to speak, uh, in the book of Matthew. And then on Christmas, we'll look at it in the book of uh, Luke and see Luke's account of what happened on that particular day, on that holy night, if you will. But um, the, the very beginning of Matthew's gospel is a genealogy says this is a, a record 
of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is from Matthew chapter 1. Now Matthew goes through all of these generations and in in keeping with uh, convention at the time and and the literary device that's sort of a truncated um, genealogy to, to put together a symmetry of 14 generations from Abraham to David and and 14 generations from David uh, to the exile, and 14 generations from the exile to Christ, as Matthew points out in verse 17. Now, uh, there were more generations, but these are the ones that were significant to be included in the genealogy. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because Jesus didn't just show up. And contrary to what you may hear from those in the world who don't know him, Jesus didn't come to establish a new religion. That was never part of the deal. Jesus was. And Jesus is. And when Jesus came as the Christ, the anointed one, he came as ultimate reality. To align us with reality. To bring sinful people into the the fold of a holy God. Religion had nothing to do with it. The point being that Jesus came and as he came, he was fulfilling the promise that God had made. And that's our core reality for today. The promise of Christ's coming is ancient, but the Christ who came is eternal. You've got it written before you. You've got it up on the screen. Let me read it again. The promise of Christ's coming is ancient, but the Christ who came is eternal. Let me draw your attention to 1 Peter. Our memory verse comes from this section, but let's read together from 1 Peter. If you're in Matthew that's at the beginning of the New Testament. First Peter is almost to the very end. You got some real skinny letters that come after it. Uh, Peter's got some skinny letters. Then John's got some skinny letters. Then Jude's got a real skinny letter. And then Revelation. All right. So if you go all the way to the back and start moving back to the left, you'll find it. First Peter, chapter one. Our memory verse is in verse 20. And I had planned to read a shorter passage, but I get excited and I'm going to start with verse 3 because I want to and I have it in front of me. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting with verse 3. I, I would apologize, but I never feel bad about reading too much scripture. Because you don't need to hear my words, you need to hear God's word. Here is what Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to to read that part again, and this is a really good time for God's people to say amen. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power 
until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Let me just stop for a minute. How many of you have not had to suffer grief? Some of you right now are dealing with very acute grief as you're going through the holidays without ones that you love dearly. And it's heavy. And it breaks your heart. It is right that we should feel that way. I believe this is my opinion, but I'm pretty sure I can back it up from Scripture. I believe it is sinful for Christians to act like we don't have pain. I think it's dishonest. And it denigrates the God who comes and binds our wounds and heals our pain and carries us through our grief. So let's not run away from the reality of suffering. We feel, we hurt. And the full healing, all things being made right, is not going to happen in this life. That comes in the next. Back to the text. Picking up again in verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, in this salvation, in this power in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since then, you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially. Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, 
but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in, those, in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. This passage gives us the context, the reason 4 verse 20, our memory verse. It's significant for us to, to remember that verse, but no verse of Scripture is intended to stand out of its context. When we understand the whole story, then the meaning of the verse individually carries so much more weight than when we just pluck it out like it's something for a greeting card. That's always my fear with these memory verses, but I want us to make sure that we understand why, why we're doing this. What's the point? It is in salvation. It is in the glorious grace of our God to us in Christ where he defeated sin at the cross and one day will return to fulfill all of the promises of setting everything right. This is where we find the hope of Advent. You see, as, as Christ followers, when we celebrate Advent, when we celebrate his coming, we're generally talking about his first Advent, his first coming. But let there be no doubt, everything we do, we are in the midst here of the now and the not yet. We live in Christ. We are seated in the heavenly realms in Christ. God has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ when we have received him by faith. We've been united to him. But everything we do is with an eye to that second advent. When all of the darkness will be made light, when all sin will be removed, when all enemies of God will be put down, when all that is less than perfectly glorious in God's sight is destroyed. In that day there will be great weeping and gnashing of teeth because there will be many who are opposed to God. But after that day, there will be none. And everything that is done for Christ will come shining through as precious stones through a fire. And everything that is less, everything done for self, everything done for human wisdom, for our glory in this world, it'll all be burned up. And then, all of the joyful promises of God's kingdom come, will come to fruition. And this is the day that we long for, the day that has no end the day of the Lord that leads us into eternity. The promise of Christ's coming is ancient, but the Christ who came is eternal. Let's go ahead and fill in some blanks as we work through this. Notice this. The whole overarching story of Scripture points to Christ. The whole overarching story of Scripture points to Christ. 
The entirety of the written word is given to bring us to the living word. When you see what God is doing from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, all of it points to Christ. Turn, if you would, to the book of Luke, chapter 24. So if you're still in 1 Peter, you're going to slide back to the left, not quite to Matthew. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus has already died for our sins. He has already been raised to life. And uh, the disciples have been tormented by this, by this loss. They have been overwhelmed and they have lived in fear and trembling, wondering what is next because their hope, so they thought, had been dashed. In chapter 24 of the book of Luke, starting with verse 1, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered it, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? I just, I, this is just me, I guess. Maybe it's sanctified imagination. Maybe it's just being silly. I, I hope it's not that. I just wonder what the tone of those angels, those men was. Were they, were they smiling? Were they stern? It, it, it just, it puzzles me to just think about these women trembling, wondering what in the world's going on, and the angels who've been waiting for this moment, longing to look into these things and to understand it. And they're like, <laughs> what? Why are you here? He's alive. Not a road we probably need to go down, but it just is a curiosity to me. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Verse 6, he's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you when he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Jump ahead to verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Sometimes God veils himself from us because we're not meant to see things yet. So often when we feel like God is distant, it's because he is deliberately choosing to veil himself for that moment as he reveals himself in his own time. Verse 17, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem, a pilgrim? Are you just here and you don't really know what's going on? Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. Again, I'm wondering, what's Jesus' tone as he says this? Is he smirking? Because if I'm Jesus, I'm smirking. <laughs> 
What, what, what things are you talking about, bro? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Can you hear in their words their, their desperation? Now we know how the story ends. We know what's going on. Like the angels. <laughs> Why are you looking for them here? But they're desperate. We had hoped. In other words, our hope is gone. He's gone. Our hope is gone. We had hoped that he would be the one. The one that had been foretold. The one who was to come. The Christ who would redeem Israel. And now he's gone. He's dead. And now we can't even find his body. And these crazy chicks up there are saying that he's alive. I'm sorry if that seemed disrespectful. I didn't mean it to. Sometimes they get carried away. It's not supposed to be a joke. They're not rejoicing in the resurrection. They are downcast and hopeless. And yet, in the middle of their downcast hopelessness, Jesus, who is still veiled from their eyes, they see him, but they don't see him. They don't recognize him. Jesus, the whole time, knows exactly what's going on. Just like he does in our lives. We may not see it. We may not recognize his hand in our moment, but he knows it was always the plan. <laughs> Jesus responds in verse 25. He said to them, How foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, this is where we get to the reason we're actually reading this text. Everything else has been to set us up so that we can see the point here that the whole overarching story of Scripture points to Christ. And now Jesus begins to bring that out. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart, not, not you're dumb and, man, you guys are just, what fools? Not, not like that. He's pointing out that they should have seen this in the scriptures all along. The same things he said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You're, you're Israel's teacher. You don't get this? I'm using earthly analogies. and How are you going to understand eternal, infinite, heavenly things if you're not even picking up on the object lesson I'm giving you here? How foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? In other words, it, it wasn't a surprise. 
It wasn't a plan B. It wasn't, man, poor Jesus. Things really went badly here. This was why he came. It was the promise. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, okay, so from the Torah, from the, you know, we've been in the book of Numbers, from, from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way through the, 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 the prophets up to the end of the Old Testament, going through all of these scriptures, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The whole overarching story of scripture points to Christ. The entirety of the written word is given to bring us to the living word. Notice, the coming of the Christ is the very heart of God's redemptive purpose. He is the true essence of everything that God wants to communicate to the world and to his people. There is nothing else that we need. It's Christ. It's always been Christ. It will always be Christ from Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to end. The word of God is one big story of God redeeming his people. And all of it points to Jesus Christ, the Christ who came. Notice secondly, the coming of Christ was promised from the beginning. The coming of Christ was promised from the beginning. Go all the way back to the book of Genesis, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. Now, I hope this is a familiar passage. If you have been at real life for any length of time, it's familiar to you because we've gone through it numerous times. You know the story, whether or not you've read the text. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve make the only conceivable bad decision they could make in life. God gave them one thing. He had one job. Don't do this. Well, that's the one thing I want to do. I'd love to make fun of them for that or, or criticize them for that. But man, if that doesn't sound a whole lot like the guy standing in the pulpit right now. You know, just a, little, just a little aside if you'll indulge me for a moment. It's not hard. It's not. It's not hard to avoid sin. Except for it's really hard to avoid sin. We do what we want to do. And in Christ, he changes our affections so that when we have been converted, when we've been reborn in Christ and the Holy Spirit then dwells in us, that's not true of us before we receive Christ by faith. But when God changes us and his Holy Spirit moves into us, he changes our desires. The mind controlled by the flesh, by the, the, the sinful nature, doesn't submit to God. It can't submit to God 
It's too full of self and pride to ever choose to submit to God. But when God comes in, snatches that stone heart out and says, I'm going to give you a heart of flesh that responds to me. He changes our desires so that we want to please God. And yet, while I'm dead to sin, that's not who I am anymore, I still have sin living in me, with me. I still carry this flesh suit around. Say amen if you know what I'm talking about. It isn't hard. It shouldn't be hard. But each one of us is tempted when by our own evil desires we are dragged away and enticed. And when we give in to that, then that temptation, that desire gives birth to sin. And sin, once full grown, leads to death. Jesus came to, to take all of that away. And here in the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, we see the advent, if you will, of sin. You know, they eat the fruit. Eve listens to the interloper who says, you know, God's holding back. Any sensible person would go ahead and eat this fruit because it, it would this will make you wise like God and he just knows that you'll be like him. And yes, in a sense that was true. He also knew what would come with it. The devil has a tendency to use partial truth to entice us without telling us the full story or helping us see the cost. In any case, in verse 8, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The Lord is big on rhetorical questions, by the way. The man said, The woman you put here with me. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. By the way, this is a, a verse that is often abused by those who want to see misogyny as something that is, is biblical and it is not and it never has been. This is an, an indictment of Adam being an excuse maker. It's not saying, oh, this is all Eve's fault. It's Adam saying, oh, this is all Eve's fault. You know, like when two kids get in trouble and they both point at each other, so he did it. You know, that's what's happening here. It's the first time the blame game gets played. It's the woman. It's her fault. Oh, by the way, it's the woman you put here with me. It's your fault, God. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The serpent's fault. The devil made me do it, as Flip Wilson used to say. Three of you know who Flip Wilson are. The devil didn't make her do anything. He's never made any of us do anything. He presents us with choices. And he makes the bad choice look good and tries to hide the good choice or make it look bad or costly or hard. And our own sinful desires drag us away. All she had to do was obey the one who made her and gave her everything. But no, I guess I'll listen to the snake. 
So the Lord God said to the serpent, this is where we begin to come to the point. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Notice verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the first prophecy of the Christ, the serpent crusher. At the cross, the serpent would wound him, but the Christ would defeat the serpent, and one day he will be utterly destroyed. The coming of Christ was promised from the beginning. The moment sin came, the promise of redemption in Christ came with it. Think about that. The very moment that sin came, there was not a moment when the curse existed that the promise did not. The gospel, the good news, was always present. Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Before Adam and Eve even existed, he was already the plan. And God here promises Christ first, not to Eve, not to Adam, but first promises this coming serpent crusher to the serpent. The curse on the serpent, the curse on the woman, the curse on the man. But in the very first part is the promise that the Christ would come the coming of the Christ reveals that God keeps his promises and that his desire was always for mercy and redemption. The coming of Christ was promised from the beginning. Next, see this. The history of God's people centers on the promised Christ. The history of God's people centers on the promised Christ. The coming of Christ is the center of everything. He is the glory of Israel, the light to the nations, and the head of the church. We see this since we're still in Genesis. Turn to chapter 12. In chapter 12, we see the call that would lead to the nation of Israel. There is, at this time, no Israel. There are no, no uh, people of God, no children of God set apart as a group, as a body. God always has a remnant, even before there was an Israel. But here in chapter 12, God calls the one named Abram, later known as Abraham, as we know him. And here's what he says, starting with verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will, I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In case you were wondering, God's gospel, God's good news, God's message was always for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. It was always for the nations, for the whole world, all peoples on earth will be blessed through Abram, through 
the one known as Abraham. So Abram left as the Lord told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Verse 5. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. And they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great great tree of Morah at, at Shechem. At the time the Canaanites were in the land, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, now notice this, to your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. The Lord told Abram, it is through your offspring, through your seed, that I will give this land. Turn to Galatians chapter 3 in the New Testament. You're going to go past Matthew and John, not quite as far as you were in 1 Peter. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, we'll pick up with verse 15. Your Bible probably has a heading, something similar to the law and the promise. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or uh, or add to a, a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, referring back to the scripture we just read. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Christ was always the promise. He was promised from the beginning And the history of God's people centers on the promised Christ. The coming of Christ is the center of everything. He's the glory of Israel, the light to the nations, the head of the church. Next point. The promised king, I mean, I'm sorry, the promised Christ was to be God's forever king. The promised Christ was to be God's forever king. You don't have to turn there, but in 2 Samuel 7, we see David wanting to build a temple for the Lord. Lord, I want to build you a house. And God's like, you want to build me a house? Did I ever ask you to build me a house? David, I'm going to build you a house. Not out of stones, but out of generations. I'm going to build you a house that lasts forever. And your descendant will sit on the throne forever we call this the davidic covenant as god promises to david that the christ will come from his line this is significant because david is the great king of israel or so it is thought but david foreshadows the one who would come the christ who would be the perfect and forever king of israel The promised Christ was to be God's forever king. In 1 Samuel, 
The people cry out for a king like the rest of the nations, and God gives them Saul. Saul looked apart. He was exactly what they wanted in a king. He was taller than everybody else. He was handsome. He was strong. He was a warrior. He was also disobedient to the Lord, and the Lord rejected him. He didn't rule according to God's will, but according to his own understanding. David came along, supplanted Saul, not by David's choice, but by the Lord's choice, and the word calls him a man after God's own heart. But David was fatally flawed as well, a man of sin with bloody hands who commits adultery and tries to cover it up by setting the woman's wife up to be killed. Husband up to be killed. I got confused there for a second. David was the great king and a man after God's own heart. How? Well, he repented. He humbled himself. But David could only fulfill part of this prophecy of great king. What Saul did poorly and David did partly, Christ does perfectly. The coming of the Christ is the guarantee of God's kingdom come when sin and shame will be no more and righteousness will rule. This is when we sing joy to the world. Right? This is, this is the whole point. This is the coming of the kingdom. When Jesus comes that second time to establish his direct, perfect rule of righteousness, in the meantime we have this down payment. We know that God keeps his promises. We see the reality of who he is. The coming of Christ is the guarantee of God's kingdom come. When that happens, there will be no more tears. There will be no more sickness and death. No more darkness. But Christ, only Christ, Notice this, even the smallest details are in God's sovereign plan. Even the smallest details are in God's sovereign plan. As we looked at Matthew chapter 1 and we see that genealogy, for the sake of time we won't go read through it, but in those generations that are listed, there are a bunch of names that for the most part we don't know. Most of us are like, "Ah, who cares? I don't want to read genealogies because I don't know these names. But when it's your family, some of you have spent a lot of time and even a fair amount of money trying to track genealogy, right? Because it matters. You want to know about these generations. So these genealogies may not mean anything to you on the surface, but they mean everything when we begin to realize exactly what's going on. My daughter recently was part of a a, a retreat studying the book of Ruth and discovering in the book of Ruth that this seemingly obscure story about a Jewish woman who leaves the land of God's people and uh, goes and and, uh, marries, and her sons marry, uh, her sons marry these foreign women. Her husband and her sons die, they come back, and now she has this Moabitess daughter, right? She... I think I misspoke. 
Naomi was a, was a Hebrew, an Israelite. But her daughter Ruth was not. Her daughter-in-law Ruth was not. They come back. Ruth expresses supreme loyalty to her, but not only to her, she renounces everything of her past and becomes a follower of Yahweh, the one true living God. She becomes an Israelite. And Boaz, who the story focuses on, is a foreshadowing of Christ, and he redeems her. He comes and he takes care of her and he brings her in. It's a picture of God and his people. It's a picture of Christ and us. And out of this relationship in a seemingly obscure story in the Old Testament, during the time of the judges, Boaz and Ruth become part of the line that would produce Jesus Christ. Not one detail is wasted. The smallest details are in God's sovereign plan. The coming of the Christ was the culmination of unfathomable variables arranged sovereignly by God to accomplish his purpose for his glory. Let me say that again. The coming of the Christ was the culmination of unfathomable variables arranged sovereignly by God to accomplish his purpose for his glory. No person, event, decision is insignificant. Nothing is wasted in God's economy. Every little thing that enters our lives, good, bad, or indifferent, serves God's providence for his ultimate glory and our ultimate good. Everything in history, not just in your history, but in history, in the history of creation, every part of it led you to the foot of the cross. That's the point. God arranged molecules and epochs and empires so that this moment in time could happen. Only God does that. And he did it so that all of history would bring you to the foot of the cross to surrender yourself to Christ. And once that happens, then every part of history, every part of your history, every part of everything going on around you and the circumstances that you don't control from inflation and economic downturns to hurricanes and wildfires, every part of this is being used by God, orchestrated by God to shape us. And what the enemy uses as a, as a weapon to shipwreck us, God is already ordained as a tool to shape us, to make us like Christ. Even the smallest details are in God's sovereign plan. Notice this. The eternal Christ is above and beyond all things. The eternal Christ is above and beyond all things. We saw earlier in the service, in John chapter 1, in those first 18 verses, that Christ is himself God. Turn, if you would, to Colossians chapter 1. 
If you remember where you were in Galatians, it's just a few pages past that, a couple of books past that, but they're all skinny back there. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You might beat me there because my pages are obviously skinny. Colossians chapter 1. Remembering that the eternal Christ is above and beyond all things, we begin reading with verse 15 of Colossians 1. Speaking of Christ, Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I'm going to continue. I was going to stop there, but I'm too excited. 21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your, in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Amen and amen. The eternal Christ is above and beyond all things. The coming of Christ reminds us that there never has been, will be, or can be anything, anything that compares to Christ. He is supreme He is the name above all names. In Christ, the invisible God is made visible for us. God has given us this tangible assurance that there is nothing, nothing that can come into our lives that is beyond his control. Nothing that stands against us can even compare to the one who came to give himself for us. In the immortal words of VeggieTales, He is the biggest, and he's on our side. As we close, I draw your attention back to the core reality of today's message. The promise of Christ's coming is ancient, but the Christ who came is eternal. Our memory verse from 1 Peter 1.20, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. I want to implore you, if you have not come to terms with the reality of sin and judgment, understand that you were created for one purpose. Everything else is a sub-purpose. You were created 
specifically for a relationship with God. You were created, every person was created, designed by God with the intent that we would glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But sin separates us from Him and from that purpose. Because of sin, we are by nature objects of wrath. Dead. Unable to help ourselves or even to choose Him. But God, who is rich in mercy, demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, the promised one, the Christ, came and he died in our place. And God's Holy Spirit has ordered your steps to be able to see and to know and even to desire him so that all who come to him will be received. No one who comes to him will ever be turned away. His grace. All him. Received by faith. Just trusting him. Saying, Lord, I'm yours. Save me. I implore you to get right with God by trusting Christ today. If you are in that relationship already, then I I challenge you to recognize who he is. To go deeper in your relationship by seeking an understanding of the Christ who came. As we celebrate his coming, may this season of Advent remind each of us that Jesus coming to die in our place was never plan B. That the good news of salvation by grace through faith in him was God's plan from the very beginning. The promise is from of old, but the Christ is from eternity to eternity. In the famous words of Abraham Kuyper, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that Emmanuel has come. We thank you that your promises are always kept and that nothing ever causes you to have a plan B. Help us, Lord, as we walk through this Advent season, as we gather tonight with the community Advent service to hear the word and to sing songs with those who maybe don't normally come to church. Lord, as we do this, help us to truly and deeply behold the Savior. As we wrestle with who this child was and who our Christ is. Lord, change us by your word. Don't let us leave here comfortable, but let us leave transformed by the beautiful name of Jesus. It's in that name that we pray. Amen.